Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles, please, uh, to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, as you get there, let me give you kind of a, an update on where we've been thus far. Today we continue in our study of the book of Exodus. And all year long, we have been studying this book um, in major sections. So we, we said the first major section was the first 15 books of the Bible, or first 15 chapters of the Bible, in which we talk about liberation. And the first 15 chapters of this uh, book of Exodus is about being liberated or freed from enslavement to Pharaoh and to Egypt. We also realized uh, that when we are enslaved to any kind of Pharaoh or any kind of Egypt, uh, that is when uh, God delivers with God's own unique kind of deliverance uh, a kind of freedom that requires a new way of life. So that's why after the first 15 chapters, chapters 16, 17, and 18 are devoted to what's called the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there's a period of time after people are made free when they question, do we really want to be free? And there's a meandering, a wilderness kind of journey in which we ask ourselves if being free means this new way of life, this new existence, and if it looks like this, are we really sure we want to say yes to the freedom that's been given to us? And then chapter 19, God makes of God's people a people and says, I will be your God and you will be my people, and he consecrates them. Chapters 20 through 24, we've been uh, focusing on for the last 10 weeks primarily in chapter 20 where we find the Ten Commandments. So these past five or ten weeks, we have slowed down and gone one commandment after the next. Now just a program note for you. You notice at the bottom of your worship guide from week to week, I usually put kind of a, a, a preview of what's coming up the next week so you can read those particular chapters. The bottom of your worship guide today um, uh, has the wrong uh, chapters. Big surprise today. You may find it interesting that not only in the traditional did our technology not work for a song, pre-baptism, my waiters split right down my pants. <laughs> it's one of those days, people. There's another name for this. It's called church. <laughs> and so in the midst of this comedy of errors, we just kind of laugh our way to the text and I want to tell you that next week's reading is actually chapters 25 through 30 and chapters 35 through 40. So some of you have been asking, how are we ever going to get out of the book of Exodus? That's how. <laughs> so next week, no kidding, uh, 25 through 30 describes the building of the tabernacle. Well, 35 through 40 is almost a mirror image of the same text. But we'll explain that next week. But we're going to cover 12, the territory of 12 chapters next week. Uh, so you read each of those 12 chapters and we'll be ready for our sermon next week. Okay? 
Today, the text comes from chapter 20, verse 17, and we hear these words. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The reading of the sacred word. And now may God add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Let's pray together. God, we recognize before you as we gather around your word that we've come from a variety of places and here on a morning in which we have a deep hunger and thirst to consume you, to welcome you, to be fed by you, to be transformed by you. We recognize there can be distractions that keep us from ever getting near the table. So for just a few minutes... We pray that your spirit would so cut through the cloud of distraction today that we may be able to hear something, some truth rising from the pages of your sacred word so that in hearing we may never be the same. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. The legend is told of an ancient stone cutter who was unhappy about everything in his life. He was unhappy about where he lived. He was not satisfied with his job, truth be known, not even with his family. He was just discontented about everything in his life. And he was walking through his village one day, and he looked, and he saw the home, this gorgeous home of a merchant, very successful merchant in town. And he looks into the open door and sees all these luxurious furnishings and these influential people. It was a big party, and he gathered all the, the, the power people of the, of the city, and they were there, and he stopped long enough to look in and say, you know, this merchant has quite a life. Look how powerful, look how successful, look how influential. I wish that I was the merchant. And to his surprise, just like that, he became the merchant. And he lived for several days as the merchant, and he really enjoyed all that came with being the merchant. He even enjoyed a little bit of the looking down upon those who were looking up to him until one day a dignitary came to town. Uh, a sultan was traveling through his country and, and hoisted up on the shoulders of his slaves on a, a, a leather sedan embroidered with lettering and tassels and preceded by men playing gongs and a throng of people behind him. Here comes this royalty and everybody in town, whether they're big or small, influential or, or failures, they all have to take a knee. And upon one bent knee, he looks up and he says, oh, how it must be to be the sultan. How much influence and power and significance. I wish that I were the sultan. And just like that, he was the sultan. And he was riding there on the leather sedan embroidered and moving upon the shoulders of his slaves under the sun, but it became very hot. And, and under the beating sun, he was sweating and smoldering and it was, it was uncomfortable. And he looked up at the sun and he said to the sun, ah, look how unbothered the sun is. 
Look how it hangs there in the sky and, 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 and casts down its energy and power upon everybody. I wished, and I was, I was the sun, and just like that, he was the sun. And he was shining down and, and scorching fields and making farmers angry, just radiating all of creation until a black cloud moves in between he and the earth. It blocks all of his rays of energy and sun and light. And, and he says, ah, how about that? Look how powerful that cloud is. Look what capacity it has to stand between me and the earth. I wish I had that kind of power, unfettered. I wish I were the cloud. And just like that, he became the cloud. And there he is, thundering and lightning and flooding the fields below and enjoying lording over the earth that he covered and overshadowed until he began to feel something moving him aside. And he looked, and it was the wind. The wind was blowing him out of the way. And he said, oh, wow, what power the wind has. It goes and twos and froze where it wishes. It blows as it desires. I wish I had that kind of freedom. I wish I were the the wind, and suddenly he was the wind. And he blew everywhere he wished to blow, and he blew the tiles off of houses, and he uprooted trees with one gust after the next until he blew against something that wouldn't move. He found himself blowing and moving, and yet nothing would move this thing. It was a, it was a, a rock, and it was unmoved, and he said to himself, oh, how powerful and strong and unchanging that rock must be. I wish I were a rock. And there he was, and he enjoyed being the strongest thing on the earth until he heard the sound of a hammer and chisel. And he began to look down to see who could have more power than I, the rock. And he looked to find the figure of a stone cutter. What if everything you have ever wanted and everything that you have ever needed, you already have? At the heart of the Tenth Commandment about coveting, is a question about what it means to live a life of contentment, of being content with who we are and where we are and what we have and what we do. Coveting has something to do about a life of contentment. And I meet so many people who go through life with this kind of just this kind of base, kind of generalized uh, funk. This kind of low-grade disappointment that just follows them everywhere. Disappointed about who they are, where they are, who is with them, and what they do, and what they are missing. And that's why today I want to talk about what this really means. It's more than just an edict from our Lord, don't covet. Every one of the Ten Commandments is about a pathway to remain free from enslavement, remember? The Tenth Commandment is a pathway to remain free from a life of disappointment and discontentment. So for just a couple of minutes here, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. I want to talk to you about interiority, inferiority, and the pearl of great price. Interiority, inferiority, and the pearl of great price, interiority. 
Interiority is just a word that we use to describe the, the hidden dynamics of the inward life, the hidden dynamics of all that goes on unseen in your innermost being. I mean, you can call it a variety of things. You can call it soul. You can call it your innermost being. That's kind of a biblical way to talk about it. You can call it your heart. But your interiority, the place where you abide with God and God alone, I want to talk to you about interiority because it's in that place where all kinds of hidden dynamics emerge and turn into action. It's in the interior life where... Great beauty and great brutality can emerge. In your interior life, this is where no matter what you do or where you go, where you're from, whether you are successful or a failure, whether you are healthy or you're fighting a disease, it's in your interior life where you can abide with the one who knows you best and loves you most. No matter where you are or what you're going through, it's there that you can abide with him. And despite the storms on the exterior of your life, it's your interior life where no matter what time of day, no matter what day of the week, he is ready to pour wine and break bread with you and commune until you remember who you are. But at the same time, in the interior of you, interiority we're talking about, in the interior of you, there is also the possibility of great evil to emerge. Selfishness and ego and sin and rebellion. This is why when our Lord was talking about the Ten Commandments, he he said, these commandments that you're talking about, uh, yeah, we have to all abide by them, but they're really exterior behaviors. But they don't start as behaviors. They start on the interior as something that's been neglected. So remember, he said, when you murder, it's not that murder begins with your hands. Murder begins in the heart. Remember that conversation a few weeks ago? He said, when you commit adultery, adultery doesn't begin in the bed. It begins in the head. And in in, in that way, there is something distinct about the 10th commandment that sets it apart from all of the other nine commandments. It is the only commandment that deals at all with interiority. Every other commandment has something to do with a behavior that we are supposed to either perform or avoid. Murder, adultery, theft, lying, they're all exterior behaviors, but they begin because of an interior heart that covets what it has not. So the thing I want you to think about is that when it comes to coveting, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. So what exactly is coveting? Well, there are some definitions. I mean, Merriam-Webster says it this way, to wish for earnestly or to desire what belongs to another inordinately or culpably. That's fine. Another one from the the, the Cambridge English Dictionary, uh, to want something very much, especially something that belongs to someone else. That's fine. The problem I have with those kind of definitions is that there's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing sinful about seeing something that you want. There's something deeper about coveting. For example, I can make the argument that sometimes it's in seeing something somebody else has or seeing an ability someone else is able to execute that actually inspires you to grow. 
Well, I had professors when I was a, a young man in my undergraduate days, and, and their command of the biblical languages, their intimacy with Scripture provoked something in me. I said, I want that. I mean, I want that. And so in a way, that was something that inspired a deeper journey. I, when I hear preachers today who are far more capable than I, I listen to them and how effective they are, how imaginative they are, how creative they are with, with transporting truth into ways that, that provoke us and encourage us. And I say to myself, that makes me want to be better. So on the one hand, wanting something that you see in the life of somebody else on the surface is not something that's sinful. Coveting moves deeper than that. In fact, do you remember the proverb, Proverbs 27, 17? Iron sharpens iron. And just as iron sharpens iron, one person can sharpen another person. So seeing something that someone either has or is able to do can provoke a growth in, in us. But to understand where it changes and it becomes coveting, we listen to the word that's used. In Hebrew, the word for covet there is lothamod. It means to want to the point of seeking to take it away and to own it. So can I give you an example? So if you see your neighbor's marriage and you say, that's a great marriage. They're healthy, they're happy together, they laugh together and play together. I want my marriage to be on that level of joy and so I'm inspired by it. So I applaud that. That's one thing. That's wanting something that you see. It's another thing to say, I want your wife. Right? It's one thing to see, oh, they, they got a new boat. He worked hard, saved for it. I want to kind of put some aside and save for it and, and get a boat because how fun would that be to kind of spend some weekends on, on the water? It's different to say that than to say, I want your boat. No, 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 give me the keys. No, I mean, your boat now. There's a difference between wanting in a way that inspires growth and wanting in a way that is coveting. So how do you know the difference? How do you know when you have moved from simply being inspired by something to desiring it to the point of coveting? I think the answer is that there is some switch that gets triggered or flipped in the interior life. That's what I want to talk about next. That moves us to the next movement of the sermon from interiority to inferiority. When you and I are told, hey, don't covet uh, your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything else, I want you to read that with almost kind of a parenthesis inserted there. You could almost insert it this way. Uh, you shall not covet your, your neighbor's uh, house, in parentheses, which includes but is not limited to wife, ox, donkey, male, female, slave, etc. Because this is not an exhaustive list. It's not as if the Word of God is standing here saying, here are the things that you can't covet. Everything else is free game. It's saying, don't covet your neighbor's house, and it's better translated household. House simply means uh, the neighbor's way of life and everything that is involved in that neighbor's way of life, what they have, what they, what they do, where they work, uh, the relationships that they nurture, everything that goes into their existence. So coveting begins when we observe another person's existence 
and then by comparison begin to despise something about our own. Because now we start to feel a little bit inferior. Like something's missing and we can't quite put our finger on it. That, that is where desiring turns into coveting, where you begin to diminish the very thing that you have simply based on what you see. This is what we call the comparison trap. When you compare your life to another person, the comparison trap at best will leave you disappointed, but at worst will leave you absolutely in tragic loss. Can I just unpack what it means to be caught in the comparison trap? See, most of the time we don't compare ourselves to people who have less than us. In other words, we don't compare down. And we do that sometimes, but we usually do that when we're talking about our sin. <laughs> we're like, we're like we, we see somebody else's life and we, we compare their worst day to our best day. And that's the stuff that like self-righteousness is made of. That's the stuff that like condemnation and, and judgment is made of. So we compare down, oh, look how awful they are. We compare their worst day to our best day and it's an unequal, it's an illusion, see. But most of the time when we are comparing ourselves to others, we're not comparing down. We are comparing up. We are. We're looking at people who presumably have more than we have. So we, we compare ourselves up and we say, this family, they just have, they have more. They've got more stuff, more money, more joy, more relationships, more time, more love, more laughter. I mean, look at them. They just have more of something. And when we see what we perceive to be more in another family, we fixate on what we assume is vacant in our own. And it's a false comparison. Now, have you ever come to the place where you say, you know, I'm looking at my life and I just, I'm missing some stuff and I just don't, I don't like my life. I prefer... If I could just live somebody else's life, if I could trade places, you know, become the sun, become the moon, become something else, I wish that I could do and live and be somebody else. Have you ever been that place? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the clue. The clue is if you compare yourself to someone else and you find your heart full of joy, you look at your other life, the other life that you're comparing to and putting up on a pedestal, you know. But if you look at your other life that you're comparing yourself to and you find yourself grateful, maybe you get to the place where you're like, you know, I find myself looking at their life and, and it makes me grateful. I, maybe they don't have as much as I have. And, and they didn't start this race where I started it. I, I've been graced. I've been blessed. I've been privileged to, to be where I am and to be who I am. And I'm just so grateful and I just want to be generous and give my life away and give, give myself away and just become more and more generous. If that happens when you compare yourself, that's one thing. But if you're looking at someone else and all you experience is a kind of despising of what it is that's missing in your life, that's a clue that you may be creeping into an area where you are coveting rather than just observing. And for most of us, that's... On, on our best days, for most of us, that's just a kind of generalized disappointment. And you just kind of go through life disappointed with stuff. Disappointed with yourself, disappointed with your spouse, your kids, your parents. You're disappointed. You just kind of... But, but on worse days, 
is more than disappointing. For some, it's, it's tragic. Tragic. My heart was broken this week when I heard, as you heard, about the fourth grade student in Denver. A fourth grader who took his own life this week. And that's gotten our staff talking about some things. And do you realize that one million people globally take their own lives every year? A million people, that's 3,000 people per day. That's one person every 40 seconds. Did you know that in Metro Atlanta in 2017, there were 1,500 suicide attempts last year? 54 children and youth suicides last year in Metro Atlanta. 54 children and youth who come to the place where they recognize maybe there's no reason. And if we think, well, that's Atlanta, Atlanta's a big place, maybe that's on the other side of town, in Johns Creek alone, in Johns Creek alone, there is an average of six suicide attempts per month. And I just want to take a moment as we are worshiping the Lord our God, the giver of life, to speak to you if you are hurting at that level. And I want to look directly into the faces of our students who may be in the other room as well and say to you that if you are at that level of sad and you're carrying this weight and you are looking at your life and comparing your life to others and you've come to the place where you're not even sure if you want to stay around, I am begging you to talk. To talk to me, to talk to another pastor, to say something. Because right now, you're in a dark spot. And right now, you're in a place where, where you can't see you with eyes that are clear right now. And you may need to be surrounded by others who can see something in you that you can't see in you. And I'm begging you to make some noise, to say something, to send up a flare so that we may love you back into seeing you for who God made you to be. I'm begging you to talk. Because when we compare our lives with the lives of others, you, you realize that this is an unfair comparison. It's an illusion. It's a false standard to compare our lives to anybody else. It's a little bit like the true story of a man in Manchester, England, and he worked at this factory. And his job, among many things at the factory, was to blow the whistle at the end of the day. And so he would blow this whistle to say that the shift was over and that it was time to go home. But he had to be accurate with his watch. So what he did every morning on the way to work is he stopped at this clock shop on his way. And there was this gorgeous grandfather clock in the window for sale. Beautiful, expensive. And every day he would set down his pail and he would take out his watch, and he would set his watch according to the time on the grandfather clock. He would go about his business. He would work his day. At the end of the day, he would blow the whistle and go home. This went on for years. One day, the shop owner comes out and says, I've noticed you've been doing this for a long time. What are you, what are you doing? He says, well, every day I set this to my watch because I blow the whistle when it's time to go home. And the guy laughed and said, well, that's funny because I've been setting the clock according to the whistle that I hear every day for years when we compare our lives at any level to the life of another human being it's an illusion 
Because there is one and only one who can set the clock of your soul. There's only one who knows how to calibrate you so that you beat in rhythm with him. And that leads us to the next and last movement of this sermon. And it's the rescue of the sermon. It's the, how do I get out of this? How do I get to a life where I recognize I don't have to covet? It leads us to the next and last, the pearl of great price. The pearl of great price. Beloved sisters and brothers, beloved of God, formed in God's own image, there is no one like you. We believe that not because it just makes us feel good, but we believe it because this book tells us that. We believe that we are created in the image of a loving creator. That means right now, regardless of where you've been or what you've done or what you've left undone, there is coursing through you the energy and love and divine DNA of God. You didn't put it there and you can't take it away. Our sisters and brothers in Judaism, the Hasidic Jews, the rabbis of the Hasidic Jewish tradition say, you know, think about God this way. God is the sun and we are the rays. And every ray different and every ray contains its own energy and light and, and heat. But it lands on the earth in a particular way, but it's still the same energy, light, and heat that comes from the same God. You are an extension of the power of God, the image of God, the character of God. Even if you can't see it or recognize it, even if it's been years since you've even entertained the thought that there's anything holy in you at all. The rabbis also said, think of God like the ocean, and we are the waves. And every one of us, we lap up onto the shore in different places and with different rhythm and with different size. But each one of us, an extension of the energy and power of the ocean itself. And there's another rabbi, Rabbi Jesus from the Galilee, who said, think of it this way, you, you, well, I am the vine and you are the, the branches. And if you stay connected to me, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. You will, you will not lack anything because as the vine, I will give to you everything that the branch needs to live and thrive and be fruitful and grow to the point that you will be so content abiding in me, you won't worry about what the other branches get. You won't care about the branchiness of all the other branches because what I'm doing to you is giving you the life-giving nutrients that you need for your branch to be fruitful. And there is a good vine dresser who always prunes and clips and ties in such a way that you receive what I have to give you. The truth, beloved, is that this, this is the pearl of great price. This is the thing that matters more than anything. You and I are extensions. And I ask you the question that I asked you at the beginning of this sermon. What if everything you ever wanted and everything you ever thought you needed, you already have? What if it's already there near you and with you? It reminds me of uh, the story of an ancient Persian, true story. An ancient Persian uh, named Ali Hafed. 
And Ali was an influential man. He had a great, oh, a great farm. And on that farm, he had uh, orchards and, and fields of grain. And, and he had gardens. He had everything you could possibly want. And he hosted heads of state. People would come by and he would host them. And everybody loved him and revered him. And he had everything, everything. And one day, this guy comes to town and he's, and he tells Ali about this, uh, this new venture. He's in a, a diamond mining venture. And he tells Ali about what you need to do is invest in a diamond mine. And I've been going around the world searching and finding diamond mines in which to invest. True story. And he says to him, he says, if you do that, then you'll be able to be wealthy for generations. In fact, you'll then be able to protect all the stuff that you've already acquired. And that night, Ali went to, went to bed completely discontent. Because up until that time, he, he was content with everything he had. He was full of joy. Look how the Lord has blessed. But that night, he now goes to bed with the awareness of something he doesn't have. Can I, can I just break into this story for a minute to give you just a, little, just a little sidebar? This is the difference between the abundance mindset and the scarcity mindset. Do you realize that the abundance mindset says, look, I don't deserve any of this, and yet here I am. Look. I've been blessed and been given, and here, 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 is, here is a life that I didn't earn, but God has poured blessing upon me. That's, that's an abundance mindset. Look what we have. The scarcity mindset is say, says, look at what, what we're missing. That Yeah, we may have all this, but look at the thing that we don't have, and it fixates, it fixates on the thing that you don't have. And Ali goes to bed that night so disgruntled and discontented because despite all he had, here's the thing I don't have. He got up the next morning and within the week he had sold his entire farm. He sold the entire estate and took the money in search of diamond mines in which he could invest. And he traveled the world over looking for a diamond mine to pour himself into and he searched and searched and spent every dime and he went broke and he died a pauper having never found the diamond mine. Meanwhile, Back home, the man who bought the farm was taking his camels one day to water, and he knelt down into the water, and he looks over, and in the sand, he sees this rock glistening. He pulls it up out of the sand, and it has the hues of all the colors of the rainbow, and he discovered that beneath his feet, the farm from which he, that he bought from Ali, beneath his feet was discovered uh, the Golconda Diamond Mine, the most glorious, magnificent diamond mine in human history. And all the while, Ali went searching in the exterior places to find the thing that was right beneath his feet. If he had dug in his own garden a while, he'd recognize that there was a treasure there that could not be compared and it, it raises the question for me, what if this, the, the, the source of contentment or the pathway to freedom from, from uh, coveting is that we do some digging in our own gardens and realize that the thing that we have always wanted may be right beneath our feet, disguised. This is why when Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God, he talked about the kingdom of God not as just this place you go when you die, he said, the kingdom of God is here. Now it's this existence of complete contentment, peace with God, 
reconciliation, forgiveness, justice, love. The kingdom of God is a way of life, an existence that today you can have, but it has to be discovered. And here's how he taught about it. Jesus said, the kingdom, that existence of great contentment, well, it's like a man who goes out in the field and he finds a buried treasure there and he, he buries it back up and then goes and sells all he has so he can come and purchase the field. That was a legal transaction. You could do that in the first century. And he takes what he finds buried because it's been his life pursuit, right? Or he says the kingdom of God, this life of contentment and joy, the kingdom that we're talking about is like a, a merchant of fine uh, jewels who searches the world over and finds this pearl of great price, a perfect pearl, the most expensive and most ornate. And he sells everything that he has in order to purchase it because he realizes, here it is, this is what the whole journey has been worth. And I am saying to you, you and I can live lives of contentment, but it's not out there. And it's certainly not in the life of somebody else you're looking at and admiring. It's buried in the treasure of you. It is Christ. Paul said it this way. Paul said in Philippians, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and of being in need. And here's the, here's the key. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. For Paul... It was Christ that brings contentment and it freed him from comparing his life to anybody. The first part of that book, he put it this way, for to me, to live is Christ. To live is, is Christ. That's why in 2 Corinthians, he put it this way, but we have this treasure, right, in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. If the power doesn't come from us, then it certainly doesn't come from your neighbor, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's ox or donkey. It comes from God. This is why in Colossians, he also put it this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the hope of glory. And I'm, I'm praying that today you might consider that when you look upon the life of another and admire it, that's great. But if you look upon the life of another and think maybe my life would be better if we could swap places, I'm here to say that you already have in you everything you've ever looked for. So how do I get there? We end with a tip to equip. Here's a tip to equip. How do you get to that place? You excavate the soul. That's a phrase from Thomas Keating, a Trappist monk who says, you know, if the treasure is in you, the image of God in you, a treasure in clay jars, then it requires an archaeology project. If it's in you and you've not seen it in a while because it's been covered with sediment and years of pain and woundedness and rebellion and sin, then excavate the soul daily in the morning, daily in the afternoon, daily in the evening. Find a time to get away because the only tool for excavating the soul is the pickaxe of prayer. The pickaxe of prayer. God, show me what I cannot see in me. Show me you abiding in me and I will be satisfied. So the first tip to equip is simply excavate the soul through prayer daily. The second and last one, the tip to equip, is give stuff away. Give what away? 
stuff. Well, what good does that do? By relinquishing our attachments to things, it frees us to recognize we really don't need them like we thought we did. Here years ago, we used to drive a Saturn coupe, a little two-door, straight shift. We loved it. It's kind of sporty. Saturn. You don't see many Saturns anymore. But there was a woman in town who was recovering from meth. She was a drug addict, and she and her husband had a child. She was walking back and forth to church, and back and forth to work, the coffee shop where she worked. We saw her every day because I drank coffee every day. Big surprise to you, I know. <laughs> Laura and I were about to purchase a car because it was just time to do that. This was still a great car. We could have gotten a trade in. You know what we did? We just prayed about it and decided to give it away. Now, what'd she do with it? I don't know. She might have sold it and done more meth. I mean, I'm, telling, I'm serious. She might have, I don't know what she did with it. But that's not the point, is it? The point is relinquishment from the things that we think we need when maybe we don't need them as much. The only thing you need is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, excavate the soul with the pickaxe of prayer and give stuff away. Let's pray. God, in this moment, we simply do yield ourselves to you because we recognize the deep in the interior life of each one of us, there is this dynamic and underway, this tension between abiding with you and neglecting abiding with you. And we recognize that that produces either life or death, and we choose life. So today, for someone who may be feeling inferior, who may be feeling as if they despise their lives because they're comparing them to so many others by some false degree, some false illusion, we pray that you would show each of us what it looks like to, to simply rest our opinion about us in your opinion about us. Show us how to relinquish the comparison that we, that we make between us and others and show us what it looks like to so excavate the soul that we find you there, that we find the treasure in clay jars waiting, radiating, and giving life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life. Amen. Amen.